Hello and welcome to Versify, the poetry podcast. Thank you for joining us or rejoining us. Uh, I think the first thing I should say is don't panic. I know this is an unfamiliar voice that you may be hearing for the first time if you're a regular listener. This is David. I've been handed the reins for now, but don't worry. Dan is here. Rob is here. Oh, yeah. Hello, Dan. Hello, David. And hello, Rob. Hello, mate. How are you doing? Uh, so I've been entrusted with the, well, the gong, first of all. That was the most <laughs> nerve-wracking thing. I'm just going to put the gong down now. Uh, and with the, the hosting duties for, for today. On the basis, what, Dan, that you know... I felt that you said, number one, you had been reading one of Keats's long poems. Mm-hmm. Number two, you said, I don't know if you've been yet, you were going to London to hear a reading of, what was it? Yeah, I have been. And that is absolutely something I was going to talk about. Yes. Uh, it's a reading of the Eve of St. Agnes. So so I'm sure we'll come on to that. Yeah. But all of those things combined with my total ignorance about John Keats and failure to do anything just made me think maybe this was one that you could take the, as you so eloquently put it, reins of. Well, yeah. And it's an honour, obviously, <laughs> but a bit daunting, partly because it's just a bit weird to suddenly do this. <laughs> for the first time in however long we've been doing this, three years. But also, I don't know that much about Keats either, let's be honest. <laughs> uh, which is, as we know, the whole point of this anyway, yeah. so I suppose I don't yeah. feel too bad about it. Yeah. Anyway, Rob, how are you? I'm all right, man, yeah, good, yeah, everything's all cool, I think, yeah. No, nothing to report. I also know nothing about John Keats other than, you know, the absolute basics. So uh, that will be a voyage of exploration and discovery, mm-hmm. as, as it usually is. I will be... Like Cortez, standing silently on that hill in Darien. Oh, I see, and seeing the Pacific for the first time. Very much so. Although, as we as, as we know, it was not Cortez; it was uh, Balboa. It's as established on a previous pod. Yeah, yeah, we've been there. We've done that. Yeah, we've done. Well, you that, say yeah. established, I mean, as said by you. I'm not sure. <laughs> but I mean, historically, Cortez. <laughs> the same all, historically, Cortez was yep. not the person who, who okay. first saw the first European who oh, saw right. the Pacific from Darien, a hill in Darien. Famously, Balboa okay. climbed yeah. the mountain and saw the Pacific. And then, was, right. and then was murdered. Well, not murdered, he was executed. He was had his head lopped off by a political rival shortly after. Mm. Wow, didn't mess about, did they? No. Um, and, and ended up giving his name to Rocky because the Balboa Park is named after Balboa. So that is why Rocky... Yeah, event, well, you know, via via various districts in the United States. Mm. Yeah, it's it's the it's the Panamanian currency as well, the, and it's all about the getting to the Pacific. Yeah, it's the first and of European course, Pacific. Stallone's journey was from the Eastern Seaboard to the Western Seaboard, and also being um, starting as a fighter and ending up a little bit more Pacific. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, right, anyway, yeah, so we're here, we're, all, we're back in the Dan Cave, for those who like to visualise, as I do, actually, when I'm listening <laughs> to a podcast. Uh, we've done the last few episodes in Rob's kitchen, which yeah. is always nice, but yeah. we're in the book-lined garage of Dan's, which is... Uh, I think we can call it, for our listeners, the library. Yeah. We're in Dan's <coughs> library, aren't we, really? I mean, there's more books here than there are in Eastbourne Library, I reckon. There's a lot of books. There's a pleasing amount of sort of general bric-a-brac and detritus as well. <laughs> Uh, which and when I arrived, there was some frantic vacuuming going on because the venue was—I uh, love this. It was a—it was a teenage party central last night, and now it's a middle-aged poetry <laughs> party. Yeah, no, what is the word actually? Seminar. That's not the word. Bacchanal. <laughs> salon. Yeah, a salon, a literary salon. Vodka's yeah, yeah. been replaced by coffee. Yeah. yeah. 
sadly. And we're, we're ready to go. So, yeah, John Keats. Um, I've forgotten how... Do we do the quiz first or do we do the... What do we know about John Keats thing first? Uh, we do the quiz, quiz, don't we? Let's kick off with the quiz. Have you got quiz questions? Because you didn't have... Yeah, I've got a quiz, quiz question. question yeah, yeah, yeah. Last time I asked you. No, I've got a quiz question. Yeah. I've got a quiz question. I've got... You're going to do yours first. Yeah, I'll kick off with... Okay, kick off. I'll go first. All right, John Keats. Okay. What is the significance of the line... Here lies one whose name was writ in water. What is the significance of the line, here lies one whose name was written in water? Yes. I lit a play called Writ in Water once in Brighton. You did what now? I was the lighting engineer oh. on a play. Oh, right on. Yeah. Uh, uh, what was it called, sorry? It was, it called, was called Writ in Water. water. It was about, weirdly, even though Writ on Water is from John Keats's grave, I believe, is that right? But is there significance to this particular line? Uh, beyond that it's... It is on <coughs> Keats's yeah, grave. I was say, that's what I was gonna... But I'll give you a clue. Do you want a clue? It is not the only thing that's on Keats's grave. As in, there's another quote, you mean, not just... There's a load of shit on... There's a, yeah, there's a load of shit on Keats's grave, but yeah. that part of it, here lies one whose name was written in water. So there's another a, line after it? There's a whole load of stuff. It says, this, grain uh, this grave contains all that was mortal of a young English poet who, on his deathbed, in the bitterness of his heart, at the malicious power of his enemies... Oh, I'm just about to give, you the, give, the, give the answer away. Never mind. Mm. Anyone? That's a good question. I do not know. It says here, hmm, where I've just got this question from, let's say it's a book. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it says, his last request was that he be placed under a tombstone bearing no name or date and only the words, here lies one whose name was written water. But they didn't do that. They wrote a load of other shit as well. Right, right. Okay, wow. So, yeah, so his final wishes were not... Uh, immediately betrayed him, adhered yeah. to. Um, so he, he says, desired these words alone to be engraven on his tombstone. Here lies one whose name was written water, February the 24th. Is it written or written on water? Writ in water. Is, is it, it written in water? I, I thought it was written on water. Yeah. No, it's written in water. I mean, on would make more sense. Written well, in water just sounds like straight, you're trying to write something underwater. No, 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 no it's, it's written in water. Like it's, oh, you, as in used, instead of ink? You've used in water instead of ink, yeah. Oh, you know what? I've, I've always, always assumed it meant trying to write, trying on, to write water. on water. Oh, using a stick and trying to write yeah. on water. Oh, that would make more sense. Well, maybe that's what it does mean. But maybe that's what he originally said. You're still, you're I mean, they You're up. still writing in water, aren't you? I mean, yeah, they both work, clearly. They both what work. What trying to say. Yeah. Anyway, they totally gang-bitched him because then there was a relief of a liar with broken strings and this long epitaph. Oh, hang on. The text bears an echo from Catullus. What a woman says to a passionate lover should be written in the wind and the running water. So it's a kind of he's nicked it a little bit from Catalyst. Oh, right. Uh, okay, that, that's interesting. Do you? I mean, they kind of got it right, didn't they? It's better that he was given a more fulsome sign-off yeah. than the one he yeah. obviously in his yeah. dark yeah final days or weeks or wherever, whenever it was that he decided that well, that's this, what this, 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 You're saying it's a bit like, don't get me anything for my birthday. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. isn't it? And then when it comes around, like, wasn't it Kafka? Yeah. Wasn't it Kafka who said, "Burn all my works after I'm dead," and then they well, and yeah. then they immediately betrayed him. And went, oh, hang on, there, hang on a second. Yeah, like, we were um, talking about Nabokov before we started, and he didn't want his final novel published, did he? There was a, a sort of a sketchy. I was going to say Laura in the title. Right. And I deliberately, even though I'm a massive Nabokov completist, I didn't read this thing because he didn't want it published. Right. Uh, because he obviously didn't think it was good enough. Um, 
similar with uh, what's her name, Mockingbird. Harper, Harper Lee. Lee. I was about to say to go go tell her Watchmen. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. which isn't that, a, isn't that an early? Byron, wasn't it? We talked about Byron. Well, Byron, Byron didn't didn't he say publish my diaries? And they went, yeah, we'll just burn them though, mate. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he's dead. Is he dead? Is he cold? Yeah. Oh no, it wasn't yeah. him that wanted them burned, was it? It was someone else that said they should be burned. No, I think he said, he look after these, lads. And they went, <laughs> oh, hang on a second. He's dead now. Let's, let's, let's burn these. John Murray or whatever. Yeah. And went, let's just torch these. This yeah. is too, this is this bit about him having sex with a bear. <laughs> it's got to go. People will be having sex with bears if, yeah. if this gets out. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Okay. Right, well, there should go. That's, that's my question. Uh, Dan? I apologise. <laughs> I mean, I could have got a question. I don't know why I haven't. Maybe I'm having mental issues. And my question is... Do you remember um, the Paul Calf films with Steve Coogan? Absolutely. Of course, yeah. yeah. I think we might have referred to them on the pod before because I feel that nothing has ever quite artistically exemplified or summed up a kind of shambolic... It's the one where he's planning to say a line from Chuck Norris to the, <laughs> to the guy who's dating the girl he wants to date. And he's got this line from Chuck Norris he's going to say, which is something like, you've got shit on your shoes oh, yeah. and I'm the shoe oh, This is the one thing about Paul Carp I absolutely do remember. And yeah. when, he, when he comes to deliver this line, he's obviously been drinking solidly all day and all evening. And he comes up to him and he goes, you, you shitty shit. <laughs> He can't get it out. It's just this incoherent sort of um, mumbling. My question is a bit like that in the sense that it's a little bit incoherent. I'm hoping, however... More so than usual, even. ...that it might produce an answer. So my question to you is this. I think... Well, first of all, my question is, can you just verify what year Keats was born? 1795. Right, good. That's what I thought. 1795. So my question to you is this. When he was 10 and when he was 20... Can you think of something that happened in each of those two years? Mm. So when he was 10 and then when he was 20. So it's a bit Wait, open-ended. 1805 and 1805. 1805. When was that? When's that famous year that like Poe and Lincoln were born? Could have been then. I reckon that's about then. Be around about then. Might have been about 1804 Definitely. or 1805. But I can't say with certainty that it was that year. We have talked about... Um, Let's have a look. Shall we, shall we see if I'm right? That would be awesome if I was right about that. That would be awesome. Yeah. Be... I think they were born a fraction earlier than that. No, you, well, you're wrong about that because they were actually <laughs> born a fraction later as 1809. Oh, mate. Hit the post. Yikes. Yeah. yeah. 1805. I mean, was Darwin you... born? I think Darwin was born in 1809, wasn't it? What a year. Um... But the answer is no to 1805. 1815, mm-hmm. that feels like that sounds more momentous. Was that Waterloo? Yeah. Yeah. Waterloo because I was just thinking what were the you know extrinsic events that were going on around him yeah yeah so yeah so he's 20 and Waterloo happens which for our listeners is the Abba's first big hit yeah (laughs) (laughs) Um, I can tell you I can can tell you in 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 related news the Battle of Trafalgar was 1805 yeah between Trafalgar and Waterloo yeah oh damn it yeah yeah, That's, like, those were the two things I was thinking of. Kismet Hardy, yeah, 1805 and 1815, yeah, the the end of the Napoleonic Empire. Mm. Yeah, that was a question. You got it right. Nice. Um, right, yeah, my quiz question. Right, I've got two as usual. I've got a sort of backup. I've got a, I've got a one, a kind of standard. All you could almost have this as an actual pub quiz question one. And I've got a slightly more niche one, well, much more niche one. 
which I discovered from the the house, which I'll talk more about in a minute. But yeah, Keats Keats House, uh, as it's now known, Wentworth Place. Um, so I'll give you the I'll give you the standard one first. Which famous novel takes its title from Keats's Ode to a Nightingale? Mm. My heart aches in a drowsy, something plagues my soul. Uh, beach and green, shadows numberless. Uh, Lethe woods had sunk. It is not through something in thine own, but being too happy in thine own. Is he going to do the whole thing? Well, let's uh, hope. Then I, can, I can probably pick out the title and win. I'm just listening quite carefully to Dan here. Yeah. Uh, uh, would you like any kind of assistance here? I'm pretty sure I do know. Which, hang on, which I would to, 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 to a nightingale. I'm pretty sure. I'm, I'm slightly worried now. I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm sure it's nightingale. Okay, I'm going to have to actually open it up. And There's actual cheating out. going on now. Uh, uh, but, well, well, yeah. I mean, this is crazy. <laughs> this is not cheating. This is, this is research. Right exactly, in front of my yeah. eyes. They're both opening. <clears throat> yeah, hang on. I'm going to get this. Dusty old copies of, yeah, yeah, yeah. of Keats. I mean, it's full of so- things that would make good titles, yeah, I've yeah, say. Yeah. Uh, Go on, give me an example, and then I'll write it. I'll write the novel. Purple stained mouth. The world, <laughs> the world unseen. The forest the dim. I mean, these are all 1930s. Harry Potter and the verdurous glooms. <laughs> <laughs> Winding mossy ways. That's a good one. Um, think also of a major Britpop band. Tender is the night. There we go. Oh yes, Fitzgerald. But, yeah. I, but I think Robin's point is a good one. Obviously, that's the answer to your question, but I think looking through Keats, there'd be other 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 uh, examples of that. Actually. Well, oh, good. I'm going to write a novel immediately just because I can use the title "Darkling I Listen." <laughs> Come on, that's an amazing title. I'd read a book called "Darkling, Darkling I Listen." Darkling I Listen. Yeah. Has that got a comma after Darkling? Nope. Yes. Well, funny you should say that because I, I, knowing about Tender Is the Night, thought, oh, there must be others. I bet cool. he's one of those authors who's lent his works to loads of titles, but I can't really, I couldn't find any anymore. Okay. Stanza six starts Darkling I Listen. Stanza seven starts Thou Wast Not Born for Death, comma, Immortal Bird. That's at least two good titles. And the following line after that is No Hungry Generations Tread Thee Down. Hungry Generations. Hungry Generations. That'll be yeah. the third in my um you know, a series of autobiographical epoch defining uh, trilogy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're right, I should write an epoch defining trilogy. It is about time. Yeah. But, but really make sure you define that epoch. Put it on your <laughs> really list. Really got Which shot, epoch should I define? <laughs> Underneath four tins of tomatoes, <laughs> spaghetti, <laughs> spreadable butter, yeah. right epoch corn, defining c- trilogy. Corn beef, <laughs> epoch defining trilogy. Yeah. 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 Uh, right, yeah, good. So you cheated and got that. My other one, which hopefully will lead us nicely into uh, stuff about the house, is, yeah, I discovered that... Well, as you'll be aware, Keats died young and miserably uh, of consumption in Rome. And his doctor, probably not advisedly, although I don't suppose anything would have helped by that point, put him on a starvation diet in his last few days or weeks, uh, which consisted of, per day, just in one day, a, a morsel of bread and what other single item of food do you think? Okay, well, first of all, let me say that is a great question. It's a top, top question. I have a random guess. Well, each and then I'll... Italy. Is it pizza? <laughs> well, you know what? Actually, in a weird way, you're, oh. not, you're not that far off. Oh, is it um, a morsel of bread? Oh, and then he's got, then he's going to have a bit of tomato sauce. A bit of cheese. It's not tomato sauce. Is it, <laughs> is it, is it tomato? A dollop of ketchup. Yeah. <laughs> 
Uh, it's not. No, it's not tomatoes. It's not cheese. Pepperoni. Okay, but keep going because no, you, pineapple. <laughs> How dare you? <laughs> yeah, no, go on. What else? A slice, of, a a slice on a, of American on a hot. pizza. Whenever I consume this, it's the chances are it'll be anchovy. Right on. That man, love it. Has got it. Wow. A single anchovy. That's actually medically probably bread. quite good advice. For well, sure. I mean, he still died. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, the starving him probably wasn't good. No. But, um, anyway, yeah. Good so, fact, yeah, so he we, went out. I wonder, I mean, the big question there, so he's in this house on the Spanish steps, off the Spanish steps mm. in Rome. He's dying. His doctor says, you're going to have to have a starvation diet. He's got, I mean, he's got no choice, really, but to accept medical advice, assuming he accepted it. I don't know. You think he's snuck out? He's snuck out from Mars bar. Um, no, so he has a bit of bread. I'll tell you, near the Spanish Steps, just at the bottom of the Spanish Steps on the right-hand side, there's an amazing ice cream parlour. Yeah, maybe. He, he could have dodged down there. Maybe that's what killed him. Double stretch your teller. But, but, but anchovies <laughs> are a very Marmite foodstuff, aren't they? People either really like anchovies or they really don't like oh, them. Oh, I'm in that second camp, definitely. You don't, you don't like, like anchovies? I wouldn't touch an anchovy with a 10-foot oh, pole, right. Imagine that you'd be being I wouldn't told. touch an anchovy with your 10-foot pole, Yeah, mate. you're being told all you can eat for now until you die. Is is a piece of morsel of bread. I'd get a second. I'd get a second opinion, no doubt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'd rather. Have yeah, they're an acquired taste, sure. And, 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 and pineapple. Okay, fine. Yeah. Mm, okay. Wow. So he went out. Yeah. So That's a good fact. Good anchovy fact. Good anchovy fact. Yeah. So yeah, um, a couple of weeks ago, as a lovely sort of birthday surprise gift, uh, my wife booked us an evening in Keats House, which is in Hampstead. Yeah, northwest London. Oh, I hadn't realised that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, we, I had been definitely been there before, not inside, but I, mean, I definitely remember. I don't think I knew it was there, but I remember going for a sort of walk around Hampstead and going onto the heath because we're right on the edge of the heath, and and then you go, oh, oh, Keats House. And it, well, it's Keats Grove now, the actual road. Obviously, he didn't own it. It was uh, he rented a room there from his friend George, uh, Charles Brown, I think. So you actually went into the house with that? Is amazing. Yes. So the. It's worth a visit. Um, it's certainly worth doing this thing. It was, a, it was a tenor. It's an annual event. So the Eve of St. Agnes is an actual, you know, so that, that is the, I think, the 20th or 21st of January. Um, so we went, actually, it wasn't quite the Eve, actually. I think it might be the day before the Eve. Uh, but yeah, they do a thing where there's a reading of the poem, which is, you know, one of his lengthy narrative poems, interspersed with, or actually before that was a sort of a talk by a Keats scholar who is part of that, that house. With bits from an actor reading sort of his, his letters and some of some of the short poems as well, uh, so it was a nice sort of flavour of the kind of the context leading up to the writing of the poem and obviously the, Keats's life at that point. Uh, this would have been sort of eighteen nineteen, and then yeah, and then the full reading in the sort of second half, and then in the, in, the, in the intermission you can go and wander around the house, and there was wine, there was appropriate foodstuffs, just bread and anchovies, yeah, not bread and anchovies, <laughs> it was. Uh, not exactly what's mentioned in the poem, but sort of things roughly akin to those, so sort of um, dates and uh, Turkish delight. Um, so yeah, it was an incredibly civilised evening, uh, and I recommend it for next year. Wow. Maybe we should do it next it's, year. That does sound awesome. So is the is the Keats House, Wentworth Place as was, now called the Keats House, you say? Mm. Is it now like owned by a kind of trust or something? That's all, so it's all about Keats. It's yeah. not like they just commandeered a bit of a thing that's being used for other purposes. Yeah, no, it's, yeah, I don't know who exactly it is that, that owns it, I must admit, but yes. It and, is, it's, and it's sort of it open to him. the public as a Keats yeah, it is. experience. Yes. Yeah. 
as always with these places, not a huge amount to see, but you know, you're you're in the you, know, you go into his bedroom, you, you yeah. see his actual bed. There's yeah. um, lots of interesting works of art with various stories behind the what that are connected to the, a lot of the poems. Um, I, I only found this out afterwards, but apparently there's his his complete works of Shakespeare is there, which I didn't annoyingly know about and didn't see. Which will come up in Worth. a bit. Uh, given one absolutely. Of your, given one of the poems we're doing is about him reading King Lear. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, that does sound absolutely awesome. Mm -hmm. So, okay. What do we know about John Keats? We've covered a few things. Uh, anyone got any stuff to add? Then, what their knowledge or experience of of Keats? Uh, I saw Keats's uh, portrait, famous portrait, in the National Portrait Gallery about two months ago. So that's that, that's it. You've seen a photo. I've seen a picture of him. You've yeah, not, you've not, uh, I've read I've read a few of his poems over the years. Yeah, the absolute hits, the top three or four, I guess, and then uh, but none of the really long ones, obviously, because I'm so lazy, so I've never yeah. read sleeping poetry or what's it called. Yeah, well, we're not going to resolve that today, no, obviously, but who knows? Maybe it will make you go and um, do that. Yeah, I know, but the, the, the outline of his biography, really, which is that he goes and lives in Italy and dies young, uh, twenty four or something, twenty five, I think, and that he's got a relationship with a girl called Fanny. Indeed, Fanny Braun. Fanny Braun, that's it. Yeah. Which wasn't terribly happy, was it? Is he, that was, right? he was well, he was very much in love, but he wasn't really allowed to marry her because you know, she was a bit above him socially. Because he's from a pretty humble background, isn't he? I can't remember exactly where he's born, somewhere in or near London. And his father's a stableman, um, and his father dies, I think, from a, after a fall from a horse when Keats is very young. And then his mother died. Another poet with a dead father. Yeah, and mother. Right. So again, yeah, we've said this so many times, haven't we? Yeah. So both parents gone by the time he's like 14. I've got in front of me Andrew Motion's, I think probably the definitive biography, uh, which I read the first half of. You can still see the bookmark in there at the halfway stage. Uh, 10 years ago now. It was, I did just happen to remember that it was 2014. Um, and it's one of those incredibly painstaking biographies which I've struggled th through over the years and tend to struggle to get to the end of yeah where it's like almost day by day this mm -hmm. is what he did this is what he had for lunch type stuff bread and anchovies yeah <laughs> <laughs> um so and that was, that was quite a long time ago and I I, I uh, yeah gave up before the obviously I will pick it up and continue uh before the sort of for the final years but he's um I mean he's right up there in terms of the classics well, we've we kind of mentioned it, the sort of the idea of a kind of unfulfilled talent, the sort of um, clearly an extraordinary, prodigiously gifted writer who was taken at an ex extremely young age. There's, there's sort of hints of Van Gogh about him, aren't there? That kind of he perhaps didn't realise how well he was thought of or you know, perhaps genuinely wasn't that well thought of in his own lifetime. And it's sort of appropriate that he would want a, not much of a monument left to him because at that point he seemed to believe that he'd failed. I see. He's the Nick Drake of uh, romantic yeah, poets. Kind yeah, kind of. And especially having, one of the things that I remember reading about him recently is he, he made some pronouncement in one of his early letters to a friend that he really, you know, he's incredibly ambitious for, for himself uh, artistically. He really wanted to sort of change the face of English poetry uh, and then died having thought that he had failed to do so. When in fact, of course, as we now know, it's pretty fair to argue Reputation-wise, doesn't get much higher, does it? No, John Keats he's, he's is very close to the top of the tree of English poetry, isn't he? Yeah, which is a pretty extraordinary achievement. Yeah, considering how young he was. <laughs> yes, it is. Dan, he's the Buddy Holly of English poetry. Yeah, that's you know I mean? that's a good chance. Yeah, by the time he was my age, he'd been dead for twenty-five years. <laughs> <laughs> 
blows my mind that Buddy Holly was 22 years yeah. old when he died. No, so you're down. Well, it, is, it is awesome what you're just saying. And actually, it's only really just sinking in because, I mean, what I was going to say was, aside from the usual, I haven't read most of it and I wish I had done and I keep meaning to, I read Ode to a Nightingale. I remember, for, well, I remember where I was when I first read it. I mean, which is not to say that it wasn't somewhere I wasn't all the time because it was in my parents' house. And, uh, but I remember sitting in the chair. It was quite late at night and I'd had a few glasses of wine, obviously. Uh, I was probably in my early 20s. And I sat down and I think everyone had gone to bed and I just started reading O to a Nightingale. And I was like, oh my God. And it was my favourite poem from that moment and remains so to this day. So what is there to say? I mean, yeah, I should have I should have given given that. You would think I would have read all of his other works. <laughs> you left you? it there. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I mean, well, we're not going to be doing that poem particularly today, but we are going to be doing one of the other roads, which I, I look forward to, uh, to having a look at. So are the other roads. Yeah, Nightingale's just mm. a fraction long, isn't it? But it's, yeah, I mean, that is the poem to read late in the evening after a few glasses of wine. Uh, yeah, I recommend it to all our listeners. <laughs> yeah, we've all probably been there, haven't we, where we, we, you read or consume some kind of piece of culture that makes you think, that's it, that's a total life-changing moment. I'm going to get into a, this massively and then... Yeah. And then you don't. Oh, I do that every day. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's a, a romantic poet. You know, yeah. That is the sort of the genre, the, 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 the period, the literary period that he belongs to. And perhaps the ultimate romantic, obviously, with a capital R poet. And we've, we're kind of getting through the romantics, aren't we, bit by bit. We've done Byron quite a while ago. Mm -hmm. Did Shelley Did fairly recently. <laughs> we've done Coleridge as well. Uh, <laughs> hasn't yet seen the light of day um, I and I dare I say get, we'll get to Wordsworth I should get back into that see yeah. if it's salvageable yeah. so Keats is a is a, one of the sort of late romantics what are the romantics to us then what is a, what is a romantic poet would we say well it's interesting that, you, that in a way their, their biographies are perhaps more pronounced than you would think about other poets mm. um, that there's something romantic about their life way as well as their poet their, their literary style I suppose so that you, you're more likely to want to read a biography of Keats than you are of Andrew Motion who wrote the biography of Keats for example do you know what I mean I mean yeah although you say that I mean Keats's life actually was a bit lacking in drama in well I'm, I'm talking color. about I'm talking about Shelley and yeah, and Mary, well, yeah Mary Shelley and Byron in particular mm. obviously who was a much more rock star yeah. swaggering figure bad bad and dangerous to know and all the rest of it so something about the romantics where somehow their life, their lives are a bit more exciting than yes. you would expect from any common or garden poet. Certainly Larkin, once you find out he was a humdrum librarian, you don't want yeah. to scratch the surface too far, yeah. do you? You know. Yeah, okay. So absolutely. So yeah, in terms of sort of the lifestyle and, and the contextual side of things, what yeah. about the actual kind of content of the poetry, Dan? Have you got any particular well, thoughts on I that? Well, I mean, I'd, I'd be interested to hear you on this topic. <laughs> But what I will say is they, they, there is obviously a lot of um, thought gone into this in the study of literature and history and all the rest of it about the romantics and what it meant and and it's linked, you know, these theses tie it into political currents, ideological, philosophical, psychological uh, kind of currents in, 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 in European thought. But I'm kind of increasingly sceptical of the way that some of these critical terms and framing, like you've just rehearsed the framing of the early romantics, the late romantics, etc., etc., they're all linked in some way, defined by some critics at some point. But what I'm saying is people have come up with these theories over time 
and, and framed things in a certain way. Didn't we come across this with the metaphysical poets when we did John Donne? And the, well, no, wasn't it Dr. Johnson or somebody that we decided it was Dr. Invent, Johnson. he'd invented mm-hmm. the, the term mm. the, meta, the yeah. metaphysical poets yeah. to pull together yeah. these kind of disparate yeah. ar- artists who would never have considered themselves part of a movement or even no. a trend. Yeah. So, so, I mean, that's a very useful point to have made because it does support what I'm saying. I mean, it's convenient for me in two ways, I suppose, really. One, it makes me think we're in an exciting new phase of critical discovery where we can reject all previous categorizations and framings and rediscover them and re, re, re kind of qualify them for ourselves. And secondly, it means the fact that I'm totally ignorant of what all of that body of scholarship is, it becomes less relevant. But I mean, perhaps you could just give us more of a traditional rundown on what, how the romantics are, are seen critically. <laughs> <laughs> How do you well, like those eggs? He's, uh, he's chucked a hospital pass. <laughs> yes, I'm sorry, mate. <laughs> the, no, the number eight is about to come smashing into me at the same time. Isn't like, it something? Take this above my head. Isn't it something to do with? Isn't it something partly to do with their embrace of um, classical ideas and their travel as well? So that they were travelling around Italy and Greece and seeing all of these exotic cultures and are bringing back that exoticism back to English poetry so that there's a kind of drama they're re-dramatising certain aspects of the classical world and finding themselves part of that same continuity yeah that is definitely a big part of it I would say there's a couple of things in terms of their sort of attitudes very generalised attitudes towards certain big things that they covered either implicitly or explicitly God is obviously a big thing so Shelley, as we've mentioned before, was a, an avowed atheist. He literally got expelled from university for, for advocating atheism. Keats, although I think he was less showy about it, was also an atheist. And that's still a pretty radical position to take, you know, way, way before Darwin, for example, mm-hmm. at that time. Um, I think the other thing is Shakespeare as well, which we're going to come to. The That's the era in which Shakespeare is having been a bit out of fashion probably for a while and I think a bit neglected for the hundred or so years. Isn't it Coleridge? Didn't we say it was Coleridge who who was largely responsible for yeah. putting Shakespeare, establishing him in the pantheon of yeah. the greats? Yeah. yeah. And that, that feels like that's important, obviously, because you're kind of aligning yourself with... I mean, it's hardly controversial now, is it, to go, oh, Shakespeare, he was he was brilliant. Did you know? Have you heard of this guy? Um, but yeah, it seems it... like a very obvious thing to nail your colours to, but go yeah, on. Yeah, and it was, I think it was Coleridge in particular who, I think we said all this, we might have said this on a previous pod, possibly the Coleridge pod, which the audience won't have heard because I killed it on my laptop by accident. <laughs> but we'll come back to that. Anyway, hopefully in the weeks to come. Um, but he did a long, he did a lecture at like wherever, the Royal Society or somewhere, on Hamlet, and he was... So it was his um, contention that Hamlet was the greatest play in the English language, and that was the kind of first yeah. foothold on the rung of Hamlet's ascendancy into the pantheon of the greatest things that have ever been done. Yeah, which just seems and, bizarre now, doesn't it? Yeah. No one else had thought about that. Yeah, they so took yeah him it and took, others like it him. It took Coleridge two hundred, hundred and whatever seventy years later or whatever to say, "Hang on, guys, this isn't just one of the good plays. This yeah. is the best play. This is this is worthy of serious thought and study." So, yeah, that's perhaps one of the reasons why there's a sort of slightly unified way that you can regard them and one of the ways in which they managed to establish their reputations. Atheism and liking Shakespeare. I reckon those are two fairly big big pillars because they're they're two things that have aged well, aren't they? I I would argue. (laughs) Yeah, atheism (laughs) hasn't gone out of fashion. (laughs) Um, But people now are like, yeah, fair enough. Actually, that's a very valid position. And Shakespeare is 
venerated arguably even more now than he was then. Yeah. So oh, no doubt. No they doubt. were well, yeah, yeah. on the right side of history, as it were, yeah. in that respect. And yeah, forward thinking, progressive in many ways. Mm -hmm. It's a time of revolution, isn't it? I suppose that's the other key thing. It's, yeah. it's literally a time of political upheaval you know, on the doorstep in France, over the Atlantic as well. Well, again, we talked about this when we did Byron and we did um, that poem. What was it called? The, the, the one about the end of the world? Darkness. Darkness, mm. that's it. Yeah, and how not only was there obviously the year of the without a summer, but there was also he would have to, to get to get to Italy, he would have had to have travelled across Europe during the height of the absolutely kind of catastrophic Napoleonic Wars, which yeah. ravaged Europe to yeah. its absolute core. So it would have been death and damnation absolutely everywhere. So that vision of Helly's portraying there would have been pretty relevant in that period, you know what mm -hmm. I mean? On sitting down to read King Lear once again. O golden-tongued romance, with serene lute, fair plumed siren, queen of far away, leave melodizing on this wintry day, shut up thine olden pages and be mute. Adieu, for once again the fierce dispute betwixt damnation and impassioned clay must I burn through. Once more humbly assay the bittersweet of this Shakespearean fruit. Chief poet, and ye clouds of Albion, begetters of our deep eternal theme, when through the old oak forest I am gone, let me not wander in a barren dream. But when I am consumed in the fire, give me new phoenix wings to fly at my desire. Uh, on sitting down to read King Lear once again. John Keats. O golden-tongued romance with serene lute, fair-plumed siren, queen of far away, leave melodizing on this wintry day. Shut up thine olden pages and be mute. Adieu, for once again the fierce dispute betwixt damnation and impassioned clay must I burn through. Once more humbly assay the bittersweet of this Shakespearean fruit. Chief poet, and ye clouds of Albion, begetters of our deep eternal theme, when through the old oak forest I am gone, let me not wander in a barren dream. But when I am consumed in the fire, give me new phoenix wings to fly at my desire. Okay, so we've begun with a sonnet. Mm -hmm. um, as we've established, Keats wrote a number of lengthy narrative poems, which are perhaps a bit more of an investment, uh, but he also wrote some odes, which is a bit shorter, which we'll come to. Uh, and he wrote a lot of sonnets as well. Yeah. Um, strikes me straight away that this, there's quite a lot of poems about writing, about being poets and the act of writing, which I think we've probably covered a few of over the years. There aren't many about reading that I can think of. We did an Emily Dickinson one, didn't we? Did Which we? was The Pleasure of Old Books or something. Okay. Yeah. Um, and Dan's already mentioned a uh, you know, particular memory of reading Keats and the actual kind of experience of that and the kind of circumstances around it and the kind of mood, etc. And this is obviously, that's part of what's going on here as well, isn't it? 
Well, he also does the, the the famous one about on reading Chapman's Homer, doesn't he? So he's, he's right. There's at least two that he's done about the exhilarating epiphanies you get from the printed words. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's used romance with a capital R in the first sentence. Oh, golden-tongued romance with serene lute. So he is personifying. What does apostrophizing mean? That's something else, isn't it? Yeah, no, I think that's what this is, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, but he's so romance is a figure here that he's well aware of as a vein of of poetry, as a vein of artistic um, muse or inspiration. So in my my earlier thing about reframing these guys from from year zero, uh, he, he I mean he he is definitely uh, saying that there is this uh, poetic muse called romance, and he's familiar with them with her or. I mean, it sounds a bit impersonal. <laughs> no, it's a she, isn't it? Because it's uh, Flair, Fair Plume, Simon, Queen. Queen, Queen of right, Far Away. Good. So you would think she, yeah. So, oh, golden, oh, 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 golden-tongued romance with serene lute. Fair-plumed siren, queen of far away. Leave melodizing on this wintry day. So he is saying, actually, today, we're not going to be being romantics, mm. or in that sense, capital R whatever kind of inspiration the Queen would give him. Shut up thine olden pages and be mute. Ooh, crikey. Adieu. So he's he spends the first quatrain and a bit saying we're not writing, we're not invoking the spirit of romantic poetry. Yeah, do you think he means romantic poetry? Because did they they even call it that then? Did they you, they would they've referred to it as that? I was thinking you've, more, read, you've read half the Andrew Motion book, mate. You tell yeah, me. I know. that's ten years ago then. <laughs> um, when they used the word romance in those days, was it not more the novel had taken off in the previous few decades as a kind of you know the the eighteenth century the novel becomes the the big new literary form, doesn't it? The kind of popular literary form. And 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 gothic and gothic romance, as sort of satirised a bit by Jane Austen in Northanger Abbey, that those are the books people are reading for fun. That's what people are doing for fun and pleasure. Do you think it's something to do with that? Yeah, I do. You're completely right. As you've just spoken those words, I've just thought, of course, I'm being completely. Yeah, you're right. He's using romance in that sense. We go back to the the medieval romances, the Arthurian yeah. romances, the Song of Roland, the French tradition of these long narrative romances which have knights in them they have princesses in towers those kind of romances rather than what you know simon sharma means when he talks about the romantics yeah so is he saying that uh, much as he would like to or perhaps has been sort of indulging himself a bit with stories Mm -hmm. and happy endings and Quests and adventures and Chivalry. fun stuff. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, he needs to put away those things, or uh, needs or wants, or the the reason for it is kind of an interesting thing to debate, I suppose. Um, and challenge himself a bit more. Yes. Is that the point? I think that's right. Or confront this fierce dispute betwixt damnation and impassioned clay. So, i.e., take on something a bit bigger, a bit heavier, a bit more eternally true somehow. Impassioned Clay. That's another novel title, possibly. Mm. Humbly essay. Yeah, the the once again bit, actually, before we get to those that stuff, that's a crucial bit in the title, isn't it? Yeah. And a crucial bit, little kind of parenthesis in... Um, 
adieu for once again one. the fifth the fierce dispute between Zack Snyder, yeah. Damnation, and, and Plash and Clay. Must I burn through? If he was reading King Lear for the first time, that obviously would be a totally different experience and a completely different you know reason for doing it, kind of motive behind it. Doing it not just again, but once again. So for at least the third time, <laughs> you kind of assume, mm-hmm. perhaps for maybe the tenth time or something. With um, the carrying the sense that he knows what he's getting into. Yeah. So either, obviously, partly because he loves it, but you would assume it's because he loves it and thinks it's amazing and that's his go-to thrill. But there's a bit more of a sense that actually it's, it's a thing he should do. It's sort of a, he, one, you know, one should do for as someone in his position who wants to you know wrestle with important big themes and difficult challenging subject matter well it's not clear it's not unclear what he's trying to get out of it. I mean, it's slightly unclear but it's not it's it, I mean, he, that that's what the final quatrain does isn't it when he says chief poet and ye clouds of albion beget us of our deep eternal theme that's establishing what he's reading when through the old oak forest i am gone let me not wander in a barren dream but when i am consumed in the fire give me new phoenix wings to fly at my desire so quite a purple way of saying this will improve me, right? This will ground me in a way that will help me in the years to come. Well, beyond death. Yeah, yeah. Sort of save his soul. Yeah. Is it, though? Because, um, I mean, you mentioned the, the topic of atheism earlier on. And is this not a meditation on atheism? Okay, go first, on. I'll, I'll come back to that. But firstly, let me just say as an aside that Impassioned Clay is not a novel title. It's a Pulitzer Prize-winning non-fiction book about Muhammad Ali's early life nice. and race relations in America. Oh, because he's tangentially story telling the story it. of the civil rights movement through the biography of Muhammad Ali. Yeah. Get that patented immediately. Love it. Impassioned Love it. Clay. Impassioned Clay. And it's also a quote from Keats, just for the nod to the you know the literati. Um, um, but is is Let Me Not Wander in a Barren Dream a reference also to Lear? Does Lear not wander in a barren dream? So he's saying, let me, through and through the old oak forest I am gone, let me not wander in a barren dream, i.e. like Lear on the heath in the wilderness. Yeah, that's probably the only real reference yeah. to the actual play, isn't it? But when is, I, is, is that a, is barren dream a quote from... No, I don't know. But I mean, no, I don't think it, but I mean, well, it might be. But yeah. do, could we not suggest that, Keith, uh, to the, that uh, Lear wanders in a barren dream? He certainly says, let me not go mad. Yeah, that's, yeah. That. Yeah, sweet heaven. Yeah, but let me not be his only of him, of the character. Yeah. But my, 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 my atheism meditation theory, I think it's possible that he is reading King Lear as an atheism meditation on the existence or otherwise of a supreme being. Mm-hmm. Because he says, so we've agreed that he's putting away the... <coughs> uh, the romance, i.e. the the stories of Arthurian myth and chivalry, etc. For once again, the fierce dispute between damnation and impassioned clay must I burn through. Um, What is the fierce dispute betwixt damnation and impassioned clay? So clay is an archaic term for human flesh, isn't it? The clay, like in the um, uh, futility poem, move him into the sun, this clay, this flesh... The impassioned clay is either um, impassioned by thought and cerebral activity or by animated by a soul, which would imply the existence of God. The alternative to the impassioned clay, damnation, yes, it has connotations of hell, but also maybe 
a godless universe. For once again, the fierce dispute between damnation and impassioned clay, like what's going on, is there a God, isn't there? So when he says, let me not wander in a barren dream, is that kind of both a universe in which there is no God or heaven, but also at the same time, a fantasy? I don't know, maybe I'm getting a bit rambly here and incoherent. The barren dream, he's saying, when I am consumed, I mean, for, for kickoff, it's kind of, what's the word for this? Yeah, metaphysical uh, Yatesian thing, isn't it? Give me new phoenix wings to fly at my desire. He's like saying, I want something other than conventional belief. Yeah. Um, is it I don't know. partly that Shakespeare is his god? Or is that a bit too simplistic? Chief poet. Because he's referring, he's uh, addressing Shakespeare, isn't he? Yeah. Um, by in the latter part, in a way which sounds like he's addressing God. Sounds like a, a poem on a Christian theme would would address God in this way, wouldn't it? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, yeah, I agree with you. He's looking for, for he's, he's turning to Shakespeare here for a steer. I mean, the clouds of Albion, so we could go into exploring that image, but I mean, they're they're the sort of eternal atmosphere, if you like, of, of the country. Yeah. They are the begetters of our deep eternal theme. I mean, on that seems to turn the meaning of this poem. What What is our deep eternal theme? Yeah. I mean, if you're looking to King Lear of all plays, of all texts, for whatever the word is, the thing he's looking for, solace or stimulation or inspiration, <laughs> I mean, it's about as bleak as it gets. I mean, we've, we've all seen the production of Lear quite recently. Yeah. It's not full of hope and possibility, is it? Yeah, we all went to see Kenneth Branagh doing it in the West End. It was mid. That's what my daughter would say. <laughs> That's a neat phrase, isn't it? Yeah. It was mid. It was quite mid, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we thought, well, I, I, he was really good. Yeah, he was we great. Yeah, yeah. yeah, we're big fans of Branagh. KB. Yeah, it's a bit mysterious, isn't it? I mean, I, I, I can't quite work, work out. We were talking about him, whether he's, gonna, whether he's putting down a book in those first four lines or five lines. But is he not well, metaphorically? But is he not also rejecting his own muse? So he's saying, "I'm not going. I'm going to leave melodizing on this wintry day. So yeah. I'm not going to write my own poem here. I'm going to instead of no. It's not. I'm not going to write my own poem. Melodizing implies not superficial, but uh, something that's kind of pleasant artifice that you've created. I mean, the difference between punk and the Beach Boys." The no, Beach Boys are melodising. But, but what's the what's the active what's he what's the activity he's doing? Which is which is when he's putting down, uh, he's shutting up by an olden pages. I suppose and be mute. I don't know. Maybe he's saying I'm just gonna, not going to read these romances like we were just saying. More light fictions. I'm not going to compose in that vein. Yeah, I'm not going to compose in that vein. That's what I'm thinking. Is that he's talking yeah, about no, his own yeah. his own news. Yeah, yeah. I'm not going to I'm not going to write this bullshit. So that might give us a clue to what the ending means, which is to say. I wish you'd use the line, I'm not going to write this bullshit. Yeah. Give me new phoenix wings to fly at my desire. So I, I will be inspired by this to greater heights of poetic engagement. And my this will strengthen my muse and reinforce my ability to, you know, conjure truth out of... Because I'll have drawn from this incredible well of wisdom that's, yeah. that's to be found in Lear, which connects me back to the clouds of Albion and the deep eternal themes which are represented by Lear, which is to say the kind of, as you say, the kind of uh, metaphysical dramas of 
the human experience that have gone on in times past in this kingdom he, he, he Keats has been born into. I think, I think this I think, is the wellspring that he can draw, rather than the rather than the queen of the queen of far away, rather than this this the, the dramas of the classical period. He he can get into his own kind of consciousness and his own interior dramas via Lear in a more direct fashion. I think that's fair that he's he's not he's not as I was sort of suggesting in a way it's not that he's 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 determined one way or the other it's more open ended he's like I'm going to dive into Lear and see if that can help me to come up with something give yeah. me new phoenix wings to fly at my desire my desire being which you mentioned earlier on to to revolutionize english poetry to mm. write something both beautiful and true um, I thought it was interesting as you were grappling to sort of um, summarise the Lear there, and I, you know the, the cliche about you know you, you, you if you could paraphrase Lear you wouldn't need Lear. Do you know mm. what I mean to say it? And I was going to say if we learn anything from Branagh's production, it is that you can't paraphrase Lear. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I mean, it's a bit mysterious, isn't it, insofar as when he says through the old oak forest I am gone, that suggests death, doesn't it? It suggests For that, sure. But equally, is that death? Is he talking about his own premature death or is he saying the old oak forest is this play and that that's the journey that he's on? He's travelling through an old oak forest, you know, the old, the, which is the most sort of English image that he can conjure, this image of, you know, the, the, the clouds <clears> of <throat> Albion. He's travelling through the yeah. old oak forest. Is the... And let me not wander in a barren dream, but I'm consumed in the fire, the fire. Right, no, again. it's making much more sense because when he says, um, when through the old oak forest I am gone, that could be not um, past tense, like I've come out the other side, it's I am gone through the old oak forest. I'm in the old oak forest. Yeah. And the old oak forest being the realm of composition and writing poetry. Maybe so. So when I'm in the old oak forest, let me not wander in a barren dream, i.e. sans inspiration, yep. but also barren dream in the sense of intellectually invalid. Yeah, vapid romances. Yeah. Instead, yeah. he'll have something more substantial, more yeah. coherent and thoughtful to yeah. say because he will have been yeah. in, 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 in reinvigorated, phoenix-like yeah. by the engagement yeah. with this yeah. vast and c complex and rich play. Yeah, And consumed in the fire, the fire of inspired composition, yeah. the poet's eye in a fine frenzy rolling, etc. Can I set you a kind of homework you can try writer of, <laughs> writer of poetry that you are yeah um what would be well the first question to both of you is what would be the most amusing replacement for king lear in the title series two of the uh traitors <laughs> <laughs> yeah i was thinking something like the viz annual yeah um and then but then write the poem obviously as well Oh, I so see. Like a totally, spectator poetry challenge. Yeah, Paul yeah. and Pauline Calf's diaries. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, but but why? Like, what, what is yeah. the motive behind why yeah. you would want to do that? And effectively, you know, you could, you could write a complete subversion of this, couldn't you? Yeah. yeah put need... down King Lear, yeah. pick up the remote control, get yeah. Claudia Winkleman on. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, big picture stuff, it's kind of like he is trying to make conscious choices i mean you said sitting down once again he's trying to make conscious choices about his literary diet so that he can engage more productively fully and importantly with um with the ideas and with the with the literary tradition yeah and, and, and in particular an engagement with his own identity which he sees as being available to him for through shakespeare uh, where maybe it isn't through the 
the golden tongue romances, the lutes, the sirens, the queens of far away, you know, that, that represents for him a glamorous escapism. Yeah. But he's trying to reject that escape mm. and get closer to the sort of eternal truths of his own identity. His, 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 his identity as an Englishman, you know, which the, the clouds of Albion and the, get, the begetters of our deep eternal theme, you know, that there is a sort of sense of trying to reject the the exoticism which he's kind of been captured by and to kind of re-engage with himself a bit more directly through Lear. Yeah. Ode on Melancholy by John Keats. No, no. Go not to Lethe, neither twist wolfsbane tight-rooted for its poisonous wine, nor suffer thy pale forehead to be kissed by nightshade, ruby grape of proserpine. Make not your rosary of yewberries, nor let the beetle nor the death moth be your mournful psyche, nor the downy owl a partner in your sorrow's mysteries. For shade to shade will come too drowsily and drown the wakeful anguish of the soul. But when the melancholy fit shall fall sudden from heaven like a weeping cloud that fosters the droop-headed flowers all and hides the green hill in an April shroud, then glut thy sorrow on a morning rose or on the rainbow of the salt sand wave or on the wealth of globed peonies. Or if thy mistress some rich anger shows, Imprison her soft hand, and let her rave, and feed deep, deep upon her peerless eyes. She dwells with beauty, beauty that must die, and joy whose hand is ever at his lips bidding adieu, and aching pleasure nigh, turning to poison while the bee-mouth sips. I, in the very temple of delight, veiled melancholy has her sovereign shrine, though seen of none save him whose strenuous tongue can burst joy's grape against his palate fine. His soul shall taste the sadness of her might and be among her cloudy trophies hung. Ode on Melancholy No, no. Go not to Lethe, neither twist wolfsbane tight-rooted for its poisonous wine, nor suffer thy pale forehead to be kissed by nightshade, ruby grape of proserpine. Make not your rosary of yewberries, nor let the beetle nor the death moth be your mournful psyche, nor the downy owl a partner in your sorrow's mysteries. For shade to shade will come too drowsily, and drown the wakeful anguish of the soul. But when the melancholy fit shall fall sudden from heaven like a weeping cloud that fosters the droop-headed flowers all and hides the green hill in an April shroud, then glut thy sorrow on a morning rose or on the rainbow of the salt sand wave or on the wealth of globed peonies. Or, if thy mistress some rich anger shows, imprison her soft hand, and let her rave and feed deep, deep upon her peerless eyes. She dwells with beauty, beauty that must die, and joy whose hand is ever at his lips bidding adieu, 
and aching pleasure nigh, turning to poison while the bee-mouth sips. I in the very temple of delight, veiled melancholy has her sovereign shrine. Though seen of none save him whose strenuous tongue can burst joy's grape against his palate fine, his soul shall taste the sadness of her might and be among her cloudy trophies hung. Right. Melancholy. I think that's one of my favourite words. Yeah. Mm. It just sounds so beautiful, doesn't it? Uh, and obviously it describes something not very beautiful. I suppose it beautifies sadness, doesn't it? It, make, it sort of romanticises the, the more bland notion of just feeling a bit gloomy and miserable. I think it's because in the... Tw- I mean, we were talking about the changing meaning of romance earlier on. Mm. I think possibly what you're saying is true today, but I don't know whether it would have had the same poetic connotations when it was possibly more used in the medical field, wasn't it? Melancholia. I was going to say, so uh, they believed, didn't they, in in humours and Mm -hmm. um, sort of bodily fluids, basically, kind of uh, determining your personality. Mm -hmm. Am I right? So I believe the Aristotelian Galenic tradition. (laughs) So if you were more disposed towards being miserable or Mm -hmm. angry or cheerful... That was to do with a kind of imbalance of your kind of bodily makeup. Yeah. And yeah, melancholy specifically was one of the four. Well, there was the bile, bile, the humours, wasn't there? There was black bile, yellow bile, and I don't know what... Blood? Something blood, phlegm was one of them? Phlegm, yeah. As in phlegmatic. Yeah. I know what you mean about melancholy, though. So today, I mean, yeah, it evokes tall windows, rain against them. Probably you're in a sort of Georgian mansion, much like Wentworth House, you know, and you're sort of holding the back of your hand to your head, <laughs> um, uh, as opposed to obviously the you know frightening horror of the you know condition of uh, advanced depression, etc. Yeah. So is he writing about advanced depression? Is it that's well, wrong? Well, I mean, I don't think so. I don't no. know. I mean, no, because the poem is quite vivacious and upbeat in a way, isn't it? And probably if he was suffering from genuine melancholy, he wouldn't have been in a position to write this piece of world literature. <laughs> no, well, actually, is he writing about himself? That's the other thing. The odes are interesting, aren't they? The prepositions, some, some of them are on, and some of them are to. Mm. So he's not writing to melancholy. That's right, yeah, he's writing on melancholy. Uh, as in like a sort of personification of, yep. of melancholy or of depression or whatever. Um, he's writing about it, and... Yeah, obviously he is exhorting someone. Is it himself then? Don't go. Well, it's, gen- it's a piece of general thing. advice, isn't it? Yeah. To the reader. Okay, well, let's break it down. What is the advice? Well, stanza one, uh, don't drug yourself or or try and escape your melancholy with artificial means. Or... I don't think it's drug yourself. It's, it's kill, kill yourself. yourself. Yeah. Wolfsbane is a... It's poisonous. Yeah, it's poisonous wine, yeah. But go not to Lethe. Is the, that's the river of forgetfulness, isn't it? in the underworld where you go there and you forget everything you experience complete forgetfulness yeah but i think it's geographical situation in the underworld implies death oh fine okay but that's no but absolutely that's changes it a bit doesn't it yeah I and mean, maybe both things are true yeah yeah so don't don't try and avoid it by killing yourself or forgetting <laughs> about it <laughs> two good uh, pieces of advice right off the bat uh, you berries somebody it was in the newspaper the other day somebody had died eating you berries oh really yeah, serious business. That's why 
fun fact. Yeah. Yew trees are in churchyards because they needed the yew wood to make their bows. Right. But they couldn't let the cattle get near the yew trees because the cattle would eat the berries and die. So they needed a place which was always walled off. Oh. I thought you were going to say great fact, Dan. They ended up having to build churchyards around yew trees because so many people were <laughs> <laughs> dropping dead instantly. It saved time, hassle. Yeah. So it, that is why. That's great, great fact. Yeah. There's that brilliant one we were talking about the other day, weren't we? In the, in the Wilmington churchyard. So many. There's yeah. a great that's one. A, that's like 1,200 years old. That one, isn't it? That's a yeah. amazing tree. Yeah, and there's another great one in East Dean, actually. Okay, so don't kill yourself. Is the sort of Advice from the first stanza. Then there's the but at the beginning of the second. Uh, so what does he go on to say there? But when the melancholy fit shall fall, sudden from heaven like a weeping cloud. It does suggest that he's got some personal experience of this for sure. Yeah. Because it comes sudden from heaven like a weeping cloud that fosters the droop-headed flowers all and hides the green hill in an April shroud. Good poet, isn't he? So, can I just jump? Can we just before we move on to the second stanza in in total? Can we just the last two lines of the first stanza? So he says, "Don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this." That's the first uh, eight uh, seven lines, and then he says, "For shade to shade will come too drowsily, and drown the wakeful anguish of the soul." Wakeful is an interesting word there. So that so that to be in anguish here, the anguish of the soul is a wakeful, and you don't want to put yeah. that to sleep. That's valuable. He's saying right. You don't want to. You don't want to. You don't want to get too drowsy. You don't want to drown the wakeful anguish of the soul by going into sleep or death. So there's something about anguish of the soul which is wakeful, which is an interesting choice of words. Anyway, moving on. No, that is a very good point. That's a for shade to shade will come too drowsily, drown the wakeful anguish of the soul. So you're right. He is definitely saying that there's something alert and important about this anguish that you're experiencing that there's something in that which is worth confronting and getting into not if just... we were writing a popular non-fiction book about the role of depression in creative uh, history of creative artists we would be having a field day right now yeah but the book would be called wakeful anguish yeah yeah it would so it's so would <laughs> wakeful anguish of the soul Maybe is that a bit much? Bit, bit, bit much. Yeah. Bit much. But maybe you have the full epigram in the in the front. Yeah, mm, gosh, but not yeah. not the downy owl. Not going with that one. That's Harry Potter again. <laughs> <laughs> Harry Potter and the downy owl. So what I'm saying is that drowsily is uh, is about as, as Keats a word. Yes, as, as it gets. Mm, yes. He does. It's his go-to. Yeah. Well, but it, it, again, I mean, back to Bob's point about wakeful. It's that contrast, isn't it, between drowsily. In this case, negative, sometimes a bit more positive, perhaps, but in this case, negative, it contrasted with wakeful. Yes. Is that right? I don't know. I mean, I'm open to ideas. I'm just rabbiting on over. Well, I mean, the, the one we just did, the, the King Lear, wakeful anguish of the soul is good for you sometimes. Is that what, you know, like he's almost kind of seeking it out, isn't he, as a sort yeah. of means of... Confronting difficult emotional experiences. The in fierce order to improve something yourself. betwixt damnation and impassioned clay. Debate. Discourse. No, it wasn't debate. No. Was it discourse? Dispute. Dis- I think it was dispute. dispute. Fierce, fierce dispute, dispute yeah. betwixt yeah. damnation and impassioned clay. Yeah. All right, should we crack okay. on to stanza two? So stanza two um, introduces a mistress, doesn't it? Yes. By the end of it. having So continuing along the same vein of this is, okay, when so when you get 
depressed. Which happens suddenly from heaven like a weeping cloud yeah. that fosters the droop-headed flowers well, all. Well, well, the big change is after the fourth line, isn't it? Because he says, yeah. but when the melancholy fish will fall suddenly from heaven like a weeping cloud that fosters the droop-headed flowers all and hides the green hill in an April shroud. So he's describing the condition. Then there's a, a kind of a slight volter, isn't there? Yeah. Then glut thy sorrow on a morning rose. Glut thy sorrow on a morning rose. I mean, come on. <laughs> Come on. What I does mean, that literally mean? That is one of the most beautiful lines of poetry in the language. Yeah. It well, means glut thy sorrow on a morning rose. I mean, what a... Oh, it's, you're miserable, mm. but don't feed it kill wolf, yourself. Don't, fall, don't feed it wolfsbane. Feed no, it a rose. Feed it a rose. Go okay. and look at a, a morning rose. Yeah, and there's also, it's not on a field of daffodils, is it? It's, a one, it's such a tiny image, a morning rose, that there's enough in that one rose... This, that's so complete in its beauty yeah. that it will nourish your soul and 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 fix you in some way. That there is yeah. that you can draw from a single rose all the sustenance that you need if you're looking at it with the right eyes. But it's not even fix you, is it? It's more the interplay between melancholy, the wakeful anguish, and the and the outside world. He's saying direct this somewhere else. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, there's an element of fix, but maybe not complete in in the sense that you're still you're still experiencing the melancholy yeah or on the rainbow of the salt sand wave what's that the sun illuminating a wave is that yeah I think, no, I think it's the effervescence you see in a wave yeah. it's not an actual rainbow it's the it's the it's the dancing dappled okay. colorful light that would be at the fringes of a wave unfortunately that's good great thank you i mean morning rose i get Globed peony, I don't get so well because I can't really conjure up. Oh, I've got peonies in my garden. They're incredibly beautiful. They're like they're just big. They're just big flowers. They're about that big, and they and they've got like two, almost like sort of almonds in the centre, the, the sort of pods, and then they're incredibly dense, incredibly dense and beautiful big flowers. I mean, they, when they are globed, they're actually still un, unsprung, you know, and they're kind of big balls like this in the spring and then they kind of open clang, like a steel trap and they're just huge beautiful flowers so you have got options when it comes to glutting your sorrow yes. you could glut your sorrow on a globed peony yeah and, and also and also in a way there's there's a simplicity about a morning rose although a rose is obviously extremely beautiful but the wealth of a globed peony i mean a peony is an incredibly rich flower it's oh, incredibly wealthy okay. flower, so I mean. the, the, right. the, the density of intense beauty in a peony is really extraordinary Okay, so if you don't want the morning rose, you've got the salt sand wave. If you're not happy with that, or you haven't got access to it, you've got a globed peony. Or, and this is where it gets, for me, difficult or different. So if those things won't do the job, if thy mistress some rich anger shows, imprison her soft hand and let her rave and feed deep, deep upon her peerless eyes. Because I think that's a confrontation with life. There's something in your mistress, the richness. I mean, he's just said a wealth of a peony, and now it's the richness of her anger. This feels like it's based on an experience he's had, doesn't it? <laughs> well, Fanny fucking brought that right <laughs> clang at him. So and he's weird. gone, oh, let me just look at you, babe. You're so incredible, man. She's like, <laughs> but yeah. are, you, are you on Wolfsbane again? <laughs> But this is where it suddenly goes from the kind of extraordinarily um, he's he's sort of into the realms of being a being a poet, being a proper romantic poet, and then he suddenly takes you into his 
life. Yeah, his and, personal and life. And a yeah. completely... I mean, we did the, the Shelley one, didn't we? About The one about yeah. Mary Shelley. <laughs> the, one, the one that one going... Robin described as he's just folded into a paper airplane. <laughs> 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 which is memorable. But this does feel like, yeah, he's sort of getting to the real point of this, which yeah. is he's had a he's had a Barney with... Uh, yeah. With Fanny, but, yeah. but 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 there is something in her that is nourishing in itself, even at her most sort of furious and and and, uh, and mercurial and crazed. That there is something to be had in that moment. That that you know, even when she's raving, you can still feed, feed. You feed yourself deeply in upon her peerless eyes, so that there's something even in the moment of confrontation with an angry spouse which you can draw from and feed on, um, which sounds a little bit, from today's perspective, a little bit, um, <laughs> like maybe not. it's not most gentlemanly, gentlemanly behaviour, treating her rage as a source of your own nourishment of your poetic muse and ego. However, that's what he's saying. Yeah. Because, stanza three, she dwells, dwells with beauty. And incidentally, here's a note saying that in an alternate manuscript, it's lives in beauty. Mm. She dwells with beauty. Not there's much of a difference in those two things, but she lives in beauty. She dwells with beauty. Beauty that must die. So there's a fleeting beauty in this situation that is in itself something worth reflecting upon. And joy, whose hand is ever at his lips bidding adieu. So joy is fleeting um, because joy is always waving you goodbye. And aching pleasure nigh, turning to poison while the bee mouth sips. So in the amount of time it takes you to, for a bee to sip from a flower, pleasure turns to poison. Uh, and joy is always saying goodbye and beauty must die. So in this, in this, in this ephemeral moment of life and joy and beauty, you are always aware that... It's fleeting, and it's like at some point soon you're going to wake up from that dream of happiness. I, and that's A-Y, as in yes, I, in the very temple of delight, veiled melancholy has her sovereign shrine, so hidden within every delight. Concealed there is melancholy, you've just veiled temporarily. Though seen of none save him whose strenuous tongue can burst joy's grape against his palate fine. So nobody knows that. Nobody sees the melancholy veiled within delight, except this him, whose strenuous tongue can burst joy's grape against his palate fine. Is he talking about himself there? The poet. Mm -hmm. The poet knows this. His soul shall taste the sadness of her might and be among her cloudy trophies hung. So because he knows that in every happiness there's a hidden sadness, he will always be prey to melancholia because he is aware, the wisdom that he has of the inner sadness that is contained within every happiness, the melancholy, the poison that's within every pleasure. He, the poet, will always be a cl the cloudy trophy. Is it good to be a cloudy trophy? No. 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 I was going to say, it ends with a sense of... Resignation? Yeah. Yeah, he's, like he's, he's resigned to it. He's saying you, you, you don't escape from this eternal reality. Uh, but but the, the finality, if you like, of the end there, which seems a bit 
more downbeat than you would have thought, and also the image of just being sort of a, a trophy. Mm. But that's because the main thing about the poem is you can't escape it. Mm. And it's et in Arcadia ego. In Arcadia, I also am. Death is in Arcadia. Yeah. Moreover, I have been one acquainted with the night. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because also he's saying he's got a palate fine. He's a discerning person. And when he boy- b- bursts joy's grape, I mean, bursting joy's grape against your palate fine seems like it would be a, d- a very delicious thing to do. Mm-hmm. Joy's grape sounds awesome, right? Tasty, yeah. tasty joy's grape. But it's, it's bursting. But he's got a palate fine. So therefore, his soul shall taste the sadness. So inside that joy, even of joy's grape, the most fulsome, delicious thing there is, that joy of extreme joy, but because he's got such a discerning palate, his palate fine, his soul shall taste the sadness, that deep underneath that joy there's a sadness, and he will always be able to detect that because he's a, he has this discerning palate fine. Yeah, me too, mate. Yeah, totally. But, yeah, right on. Um, but it still doesn't quite reconcile the idea that you shouldn't, you shouldn't drown the wakeful anguish of the soul. I mean, it seems to be saying the, the, embrace the sadness. Embrace it, yeah. Yeah. Live with, live with it. It's just a condition of life that you, if you are a thoughtful person, then you will always be able to experience the the elephant in the room, which is that there is great lingering sadness beneath all things. The Akkadian 1200 BC version of the Epic of Gilgamesh is known as apparently these poems were known by their first line, he who has seen the deep. And yet there is relief. There is relief in the world also. And there is be- oh my and there, god, and the there, morning rose. Yeah, there is beauty in the world, and he can he can see those. The things. wealth of the peony. Yeah, but, they, but deep, they, but, deep upon her peerless eyes. But they are all those beauties are all transitory and ephemeral. The yeah. the the the, yeah. the, the effervescence of the rainbow in the wave, the tip yeah. of the wave, yeah. the the morning yeah. rose, yeah. the globed peonies, that wealth, and indeed the beauty of the mistress's peerless eyes. Yeah. Well, newsflash, obeyed. Everyone dies. Beauty that must die. And joy whose hand is ever at his lips bidding adieu. That's so great. Yeah, man. That's extraordinary. I mean, it's unsurpassed. It's unsurpassed. Aching pleasure nigh. It might be surpassed. Maybe even by the next one. Yeah, true. Turning to poison while the bee mouth sips. I mean, you're dealing with... (laughs) Weapons grade lyrical poetry. (laughs) (laughs) And he's what, 23? I mean, that's the other thing, isn't it, that makes his legend so towering. I mean, if he was 50... Uh, well, in a way, you have to be, perhaps... Well, you have to be... Early 20s to... To be this... Maybe. Feel maybe like that's part of so, it. I mean, So this is published the year before But, I mean, dies. looked at, like, objectively. I mean, how... I don't know. He was 26 when he died. I don't know. I mean, it's close to Shakespeare. I know, 25. Like, how? Yeah. How? How? <clears throat> I mean, it's just the... The great imponderable, isn't it? What, what kind of stuff would he have written later in life? Would he have pe- the yeah. peak here anyway? As as lots would he have come did. up with series two of the traces? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, if he'd been born in nineteen, because hang on a minute, what year did he die? Twenty one. Twenty one. And he's born in ninety five. So he's born, he, born so October he... ninety five. Dies in February so twenty one. So he'd be twenty five. So if he'd been born in nineteen ninety five, he's born in London. He'd be dead by now. Yeah, he'd be dead by now. Mm-hmm. If he, you know, but he wouldn't have died because what is consumption? 
tuberculosis. So he wouldn't have died because he would have got medical treatment. Yeah, he'd have had some uh, penicillin, wouldn't he? And he probably would be working on something like... What would he be doing? I mean, he's... he's, he's, he's what, a poet? He'd probably be signing on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, or in a rock band. He'd be in some kind of goth metal band writing lyrics about um, seeing beauty in death and death in beauty. And his band would be called Impassioned Clay. <laughs> <laughs> we are Impassioned Clay! Hello, Portsmouth! Yeah. I mean, this is a deep question now. A bit too deep, maybe, for the time of day. But, I mean, Keats is born in 1995. Does poetry capture his imagination? Because having read that poem, and the previous one, but particularly that one, I'm now thinking... He would be working as an editor in film and television. <laughs> or no, an English teacher. I'm th- I mean... Yeah. Well, even uh, the thing we haven't mentioned yet is that he was a doctor, wasn't he? Yeah. He was a, was he, he? He had medical training. He would be called Doctor John, and <laughs> that was the, that was what he was supposed to do. That's what he was, his family wanted him to right. go into, but he didn't want to do that. And and yeah, he was well aware then that writing poetry was not going to pay. This 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 cannot be this cannot be taught or learned. This must be natural. And the fact that he was a medical student and his father was a stabler, I think his mum maybe it was the daughter of the man who owned the property, so he had a mm. slight in, went to school, obviously. Yeah. But, I mean, to get to this by that young age, it's got to be born, hasn't it? It's got to be. Temperamental, yeah, maybe. I don't know, that's, in it. that's, a, that's, a, that's a, we'd be here all day. We'd be here all day. I know, I know, I know. But, you know, I mean, two little, things... two little lads from Liverpool, you know what I mean? Although both their mothers died. You know what I mean? I mean that's that's the, this is this is all part of it, isn't it? Is the the the, the yeah? Where do these things spring? Yeah, anyway, where do these things I know, spring I know, from? I know. But you, you can't help but wonder, can you? Ode on a Grecian urn. Thou still unravished bride of quietness, thou foster child of silence and slow time, sylvan historian who canst thus express a flowery tale more sweetly than our rhyme. What leaf-fringed legend haunts about thy shape of deities or mortals or of both? In Tempe or the dales of Arcady, what men or gods are these? What maidens loth? What mad pursuit? What struggle to escape? What pipes and timbrels? What wild ecstasy? Heard melodies are sweet, but those unheard are sweeter. Therefore, ye soft pipes, play on, not to the sensual ear, but more endeared, pipe to the spirit ditties of no tone. Fair youth beneath the trees, thou canst not leave thy song, nor ever can those trees be bare. Bold lover, never, never canst thou kiss, though winning near the goal, yet do not grieve. She cannot fade, though thou hast not thy bliss, for ever wilt thou love, and she be fair. Ah, happy, happy boughs, that cannot shed your leaves, nor ever bid the spring adieu, and happy melodist unwearied, for ever piping songs for ever new, more happy love, more happy, happy love, forever warm and still to be enjoyed, forever panting and forever young, all breathing human passion far above that leaves a heart high sorrowful and cloyed, 
a burning forehead and a parching tongue. Who are these coming to the sacrifice? To what green altar, O mysterious priest, leadest thou that heifer lowing at the skies, and all her silken flanks with garlands dressed? What little town, by river or seashore, or mountain built with peaceful citadel, is emptied of its folk this pious morn? And little town, thy streets for evermore will silent be, and not a soul to tell why thou art desolate can e'er return. O Attic shape, fair attitude, with breed of marble men and maidens overwrought, with forest branches and the trodden weed, thou silent form dost tease us out of thought as doth eternity, cold pastoral. When old age shall this generation waste, thou shalt remain, in midst of other woe than ours, a friend to man, to whom thou sayest, Beauty is truth, truth beauty. That is all ye know on earth, and all ye need to know. Ode on a Grecian urn. Thou still unravished bride of quietness, thou foster child of silence and slow time, Sylvan historian who canst thus express a flowery tale more sweetly than our rhyme. What leaf-fringed legend haunts about thy shape of deities or mortals or of both, in Tempe or the dales of Arcady? What men or gods are these? What maidens loath? What mad pursuit? What struggle to escape? What pipes and timbrels? What wild ecstasy? Heard melodies are sweet, but those unheard are sweeter. Therefore, ye soft pipes, play on, not to the sensual ear, but more endeared, pipe to the spirit ditties of no tone. Fair youth beneath the trees, thou canst not leave thy song, nor ever can those trees be bare. Bold lover, never, never canst thou kiss, though winning near the goal, yet do not grieve, she cannot fade, though thou hast not thy bliss, for ever wilt thou love, and she be fair. All are happy, happy boughs that cannot shed your leaves, nor ever bid the spring adieu, and happy melodist, unwearied, forever piping songs, forever new. More happy love, more happy, happy love, forever warm and still to be enjoyed, forever panting and forever young, all breathing human passion far above, that leaves a heart high sorrowful and cloyed, a burning forehead and a parching tongue. Who are these coming to the sacrifice? To what green altar, O mysterious priest, leadst thou that heifer lowing at the skies, and all her silken flanks with garlands dressed? What little town by river, or seashore, or mountain built with peaceful citadel, is emptied of this folk, this pious morn? And little town, thy streets forevermore will silent be, and not a soul to tell why thou art desolate can e'er return. O Attic shape, fair attitude, with breed of marble men and maidens overwrought, with forest branches and the trodden weed, thou silent form dost tease us out of thought as doth eternity, cold pastoral. When old age shall this generation waste, thou shalt remain in midst of other woe than ours, a 
a friend to man, to whom thou sayest, Beauty is truth, truth beauty. That is all ye know on earth, and all ye need to know. Okay. Um, what's a Grecian urn? Five drachmas a day. <laughs> so... so <laughs> Did you not know he was going to say that? <laughs> no, I did not. No, no, no. I thought I assumed it was you <coughs> grab the bait. It's like there. a Spike Milligan joke, that, isn't it? It's, totally, uh, yeah. yeah uh, I mean, I ask it partly because I was hoping that somebody would... Oh, it's just a Greek pot. Do the it? joke. But yeah, oh, obviously, it's, it's an important thing to establish, isn't yeah, it? So, yeah. It's a Greek pot, people. So so uh, in this case, an unbroken... Yeah. Un still unravished bride of quietness. Of yeah, it's ancient presum history. Presumably seen it in the uh, in a museum somewhere, yeah. possibly in Greece, but... Um, if he travelled there, I think he might have done. Did he grand tour? I assume he grand toured. Keys, did he? No, I, I thought so. Actually, was he not a bit too? He might. He might see it in Rome. Because he was. He was living in Rome at this point, wasn't he? Uh, that's true. At this point, yes, I suppose. Yeah. yeah, he probably has just seen it in some Roman museum. Yeah, yeah, sure. What makes you think he was living in Rome at this point? Well, it's this is published in eighteen twenty. He dies in Rome within a year. Okay. So, I mean, I'm. I mean, yeah, he maybe wrote it when he was seven, but I mean, it's published when he's in Rome. I assume. So uh, I mentioned about prepositions and ode to and ode on. Mm -hmm. This is an ode on, yeah. oh. but he addresses the urn itself, doesn't he? Thou still unravest bride yeah. of quietness, yeah. yeah. So essentially he's looking at this pot, pot with, the, with, the, with the painting with around With all the... of its depictions yeah. of various Greek people yeah, and meditating on them, their, I suppose, immortality. Is that part of what this is about? That's exactly what this is about, yeah. What else? It's it's a meditation on the nature of art itself, isn't it? Again, it's sort of linked in a way to the poem we just read, I think, insofar as it's about the underlying, you know, it's the big theme. It's the underlying sadness of the human condition, which is that we are impermanent and that we will die and we will experience truth and beauty, but we will we will then hurry hence into darkness and oblivion. Whereas these characters... Uh, Is that what you're doing this afternoon? Yes. After <laughs> yes. lunch. It's just under uh, tomato, fetched by tomatoes and uh, publish a uh, three-part epoch-defining trilogy. Mm. Uh, then hurry heads into oblivion. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's 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 in 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 counterpoint to our own condition, the condition of these fictional characters or these characters depicted on this pot. They are experiencing, or they're enjoying, as it were, an everlasting kind of continuity uh, that will last essentially forever, and they will they will remain in this unchanged attitude of you know this suspended in time in their in their endeavours and pursuits, whatever they might be. Um, you know, in the same way these trees have happy, happy boughs that cannot shed your leaves nor ever bid the spring adieu, you know, and so on. The uh, the melodist, uh, the forever piping songs, forever new, uh, and so on. And there's some sadness in that insofar as the bold lover can never kiss, uh, though winning near the goal. But do not grieve. She, the object of his affections, uh, cannot ever fade, though thou hast not thy bliss. Forever wilt thou love and she be fair. So they'll never grow old. They'll never die and they'll never have to face the sharp end of things in the way that all humans do because in that final stanza when old age shall this generation waste thou shalt remain in midst of other woe than ours a friend to man 
fact, whom thou sayest, this is their message, this is their message to humankind throughout the ages, down through the ages uh, past and ages hence, beauty is truth, truth beauty. That is the message. And that is all ye know on earth and all ye need to know. Great ending. Yeah, pretty good. Yeah. The thing is that this is one of these poems that, you know, you sort of feel like you know or you, you've obviously heard bits of it, but perhaps not necessarily absorbed the entire thing until now. And I, I thought I, that this was a sort of, you know, he's inspired by seeing something and then using it as a sort of life message for others. But he doesn't ever really step away from the urn, does he? He only addresses that yeah. all the way through. Yeah. It's not like, okay, so let's use this as a starting point and take that into life. No, in, in, in a way, there is no Volta until halfway no. through that final stanza, which is that bit I just quoted, yeah. in old age shall go this generation waste. That's the only kind That's of... That's the closest he gets uh, to stepping outside of Yeah, otherwise, it's, otherwise it is essentially a continuation of a theme. It's a series of stanzas essentially fulfilling the same essential function, which is, I mean, in a, in a way, I'd have to say this is a little bit of poetic showing off. It, 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 this could have been contained. I mean, in terms of the message of it, it could have been contained within a sonnet. You could have done eight lines summing up the concept of the you know, yeah. the unchanging nature of the of a work of art, and then and then and then ended with those same four or you know five lines that close out this poem. It, it could have been a sonnet, but he's having fun expressing all the various unchanging things. You know, we didn't really need the the lovers, the tree, the melodist. You know, I mean, I I hear what you're saying, and I think it's. I mean, is it a futile debate? I mean, yes, you could have expressed it in a sonnet, but then could you not say that about many other poems that are not sonnets? Oh, I mean, this is this is an incredibly beautiful, you know, yeah. and and a, and a more complete, obviously, a more complete thought, isn't it? Yeah, and it was like so, the, the the wealth of detail is yeah. part of the point. I it? think that's right. He yeah. keeps going. Oh, and there's yeah. another thing. Yeah. yeah. No, I'm saying it's, it's not really a criticism. Just structurally, it's yeah, a, it's, yeah. A, it's, a, it's all got it's got saying. this idea and then this idea. It doesn't really have a sort of right. contained within that. There's lots of beautiful right. detail and beautiful. Also, language. is there not a sense that he doesn't want to escape? Doesn't want to leave this this world the, the world that he's happy happy bows visualizing here is obviously i mean if this is late on and he's ill as well as being kind of unfulfilled and unhappy this makes quite a lot of sense for him to want to dwell for oh longer. he's looking down the barrel of his own yeah impermanence yeah maybe so and there's a jealousy in a way for the fair youth and the lover on this on this pot that they are going to exist in their, their everlasting continuity beyond him yeah on a more prosaic note, I would just say two things. One, this must be a big urn because there's quite a lot depicted on it. So therefore, you can imagine literary critics saying, you're taking it too literally if you think it's a single urn. He's talking about multiple urns, mm -hmm. point one. Yep. Point two, has anyone ever tried to track down the Grecian urn? This one, probably. Because, I mean, that would be a tourist attraction beyond tourist attractions, would it not? Great point. I mean, if there was a museum in Rome that said, come and see the Grecian urn, I mean, you'd go, wouldn't you? <laughs> yeah. Although, I've, I've, as I've said before, I've twice been to Rome and both times failed to visit Keats's grave. Or even to politely inquire whether the Grecian urn is there. Screws up, senior. I like the idea of a museum of literary artefacts. Yeah. Yeah. Should be one. Oh, well, the I mean, that would be a star exhibit. Um, this only would. I also like, because I went to the, the day we went to see Branagh, I went to the British Museum and I went to the Greek urns, 
of which there were many. Mm. Craters, I think they're the slightly larger ones. Maybe this is a crater, uh, like a K-R-A-T-E, because uh, because it's it must be very large to have all of these different things depicted. It's got a priest needing a heifer. It's got a deserted village. It's got bows. It's got yeah. a lover. It's got all sorts of things going on. I mean, it could... I mean, oh, you, you, you've, I've just literally hit the same word, K-R-A-T-E-R. Do you, do you want to hear a little bit of, a little bit of background to this poem, a tiny bit? Yeah, hit us up. Um, I won't bore you with all the details. Uh, it was written uh, in 1819. In the Odes of 1819, Keats explores his contemplations about relationships between the soul, eternity, nature, and art. His idea of using classical Greek art as a metaphor originated in his reading of Hayden's Examiner articles of the 2nd of May and the 9th of May in 1819. In the first article, Hayden described Greek sacrifice and worship, and in the second article, he contrasted the artistic styles of Raphael and Michelangelo in conjunction with the discussion of medieval sculptures, blah, 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 blah. Keats also had access to Prince of Greek Urns, Prince of Greek Urns, Hayden's office, and he traced an engraving of the Sosibius vase, a neo-attic marble volute crater signed by Sosibius in the Louvre, which he found in Henry Moses's a collection of antique vases, altars, and patellae. So he's traced an engraving of this particular vase, a neo-attic marble volute crater, um, and then it says Keats's inspiration for the topic was not limited to Hayden, but embraced many contemporary sources. He may have recalled his experience with the Elgin marbles and their influence on his sonnet, On Seeing the Elgin Marbles. Keats was also exposed to the Townley, Borghese and Holland House vases and to the classical treatment of subjects in Robert Burton's The Anatomy of Melancholy, etc, etc, etc. So he'd seen the Elgin marbles, he was uh, seen a I bunch think, of I vases. think that gives us both answers though, doesn't it? It says... Yeah. The, there were multiple vases, obviously, that influenced yeah. this. He wasn't thinking about one particular vase. Yeah. But for those people who like to go on pilgrimages... The Sibius vase in the Louvre would be the one, because Keats definitively traced an engraving of it. I mean, you've got a... Yeah. When should we go? Yeah. I mean, I'm thinking this afternoon. <laughs> After we've hurried hence into the oblivion or before. Yeah. I would say that this is, once again, um, the bitter dispute betwixt damnation and impassioned clay. Well, funnily enough, what could be more like impassioned clay than this pot he's talking about? Wow. Like, just saying. That's yeah. good. Yeah. That really is impassioned clay. Oh, that penny's only just dropped that. Yes, boomtish. Mm -hmm. And he is damned, isn't he? He's damned to die a year later. Yeah, although actually 1819, now I'm wondering if he was ill by then. Because 1819 was his kind of annus mirabilis, uh, creatively. Yes. That's when it, yeah, had this absolute explosion of, and that's kind of the bit where I nearly got to in the motion book. So that's why I should have, I should carry on. Although Danny should yeah, soak uh, that book in coffee. Was he actually? <laughs> was it was it that that caused him to write so prodigiously? Do you think the knowledge that I think you've got to read the second half of the motion book. That it, he, his time was was short. Well, you can't say that because he was already writing amazing poetry before he knew he was ill, by definition. So, mm. therefore, it couldn't have been the only. But these poems, I mean, these last two have strong overtones of grappling with death, don't they? The, the, the impending inevitable. Yeah. Although, I mean, it's, it was obviously a main theme of his anyway. Sure. The other thing I was going to say related to my visit to the British Museum was walking around being so ignorant, as always, about everything and looking at these Greek vases. Unless you've got an audio guide, which I couldn't get hold of because now you have to download the app, which I did, but I'd left my headphones at home. But you're looking at all these vases going, who are these? You know, What figure is this? And you think, well, obviously some people do know, experts at least can have a fair guess. But he treats that difficulty 
of looking at all these vases and not knowing who they are by just posing it as a series of questions, doesn't it? It just says, "What? who are you? You know, what? Mm. in what dales of Arcady is this supposed to be taking place? What men or gods are these? Mm. So he's he's able to engage, but he doesn't need to be able to say, oh, this is Demeter, this is... Uh, I do like the idea of Keats with this audio, his audio guide. <laughs> do you think there were fewer visitors to museums in those days? He had a bit more time to and space to contemplate all this stuff. I think it all depends what time of day you, you went. Yeah. But I, would, I would struggle, I think. I think. I imagine when you went to the British Museum last time. Isn't, it wasn't anything like as packed as you would think. Okay. No, I, mean, I think possibly some areas are more packed than others. Mm. Um, you know, the ground floor is a bit busy, but I think the Greek stuff was up on the first floor somewhere. It, yeah. Sure. I think okay. I was actually I was the only person in the room actually. Wow. I right. think there's two or three. <coughs> so, man, you mentioned the Louvre, and yeah, I mean it's been a long time since I went to the I, Louvre, but my memory is of that's going to be super packed. Crowds of people. Yeah, mind you, I think the Louvre is. I mean, not to go off topic completely, but I would think that if you're a visitor to London, you may or may not go to the British Museum. Whereas I think if you're a visitor to Paris, you go to the Louvre, don't True. you? Because it's got the art and the history. It's got everything, hasn't it? A fair point. Um, obviously, this poem is particularly famous for its last. Yes. Bit. Yeah, I'm just trying to work out. Sorry, just jumping to. I'm just trying to work out how he draws that conclusion from this pot. Yeah, I was going to say, like, you, don't, you don't feel like you're totally heading towards that. He's saying you're not going to know, dudes. You're never going to know. You are never going to understand what this great deep mystery slash melancholy slash whatever is all about. So just appreciate it while you can. That's it, man. That is it. Can we read that last stanza? So the end of the stanza four is him saying the thing about the, the all the people that are on the pot. Who are these people? Da 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 da. And where and where did they come from? Which um, what is it? Uh, what little town by river or seashore or mountain built with peaceful citadel? What place? is emptied out of this folk, or these people, this pious morn, that they've gone out to do this sacrifice, there's a mysterious priest, where do they come from? And little town, thy streets forevermore will silent be, because those people are never coming back, because mm -hmm. not a soul to tell why thou art desolate can e'er return, because they're all trapped forever on this pot. So this, mm -hmm. this, the, that's the end of stanza four. And then it goes on to five. O oh, attic shape, Mm -hmm. Oh, old pot. Mm -hmm. Fair attitude, very beautiful. Mm -hmm. With breed, B-R-E-D-E, -E, what does that mean? Well, I suspect it is just an archaic spelling of breed. Of marble men and maidens overwrought. Because particularly, didn't you say the Louvre pot was marble rather than a marble Oh, yeah, that's right, crater. marble men, that's right. And mad maidens overwrought with forest branches and the trodden weed. So he's just recapping what's on there. Thou silent form dost tease us out of thought as doth eternity. So there, this... This pot is, in a way, performing for him the same thing as the contemplation of eternity. It's mm -hmm. prompting in him something mm -hmm. profound. Cold pastoral, because it's a pastoral, idyllic image, but it's cold because it's marble. It's an amazing phrase. When old age shall this generation waste, thou shalt remain in midst of other woe than ours. So in the future, there'll be other woes than the ones we're currently undergoing, where there'll be... Mm -hmm. uh, you will remain a friend to man to whom thou sayest... Beauty is truth, truth, beauty. That's the quote. They're in, they're in inverted commas. And then Keats adds, and that is all ye know on earth and all ye need to know. But in a way, he's saying that is all. Who's the ye there? The pot or the, or the reader? No, because the pot's speaking now, isn't it? Isn't that the no, that's voice? not part of the quote. So to whom thou sayest, beauty is truth, truth, beauty. 
end quote. Whoa, uh, whoa, this is huge. Not here. <laughs> oh, really? How interesting. So you're saying that that yeah. edition is authentic as far as same punctuation as, same is. As My quotation marks end after the word beauty. Wow. Yeah. Then there is a dash. And yes, right. Then, then it says, that, that is, is all. all you know on earth and all you need to know. Okay. Well, I've got the whole thing is the quote. That's very different. Beauty is truth. So, quote, beauty is truth, comma, truth, beauty, comma, dash, but no... I think this is the biggest punctuation issue in English poetry. Absolutely <laughs> pivotal. Yeah. That is all ye know on earth and all ye need to know. End quote is what I've got. Penguin Classics, selected poems. Mm. I mean, this requires further investigation. Yes. I mean, that's not a casual mistake. I no. mean, for some reason, Penguin have done that based on something. Yeah, you would like to think so. Uh, yeah, that, that can't just be a. Well, maybe they just an omission. Or no, it can't be. I mean, it's too major. Even the most casual uh, proofreader would notice that. I mean, uh, yeah, I always assumed it was the the whole thing because it's um, ye know on earth. It just sounds. Like it sounds like the, it sounds like the pot is talking. Archaic, yeah. yeah. I, I prefer it this pot. way, though. I believe Keats wrote it this way with 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 the quotation mark after beauty because then it's him. It, then it's a change of tone, and it's the poet speaking. Yeah, to the to the because reader. All, all all the vase says is the message. Yeah, the vase just says, "Beauty is truth, truth beauty." And bearing in mind that it's barely even a vase, because if it's made of marble, I don't think I've ever seen a marble crater. I assume they were all pots, i.e., made from clay fired in an oven. But a marble crater isn't fired in an oven, is it? It's a carved. Yeah. work. I've never, I don't think I've ever seen them, such a thing. And also, how could you get all of these designs onto a marble crater unless they're carved in? Because normally Greek pots are painted, aren't they? That's, that the, that's the pot. That's a, that's the, this is actually the engraving, tracing of an engraving by of the Sosibius vase by Keats. That's it. That's it there. Sorry, listener. That's not going to be very helpful for you. But you can Google it. Uh, it's on the Wikipedia page for this uh, poem. Uh, that's what it would look like. Yeah, that's kind of how I pictured it in my head. That's, no, but, but that's Keats's own tracing. But if that is a tracing of the vase, so that that's must all be mon it must all be one color. There can be no color on the vase, can there? Because if it's marble, it's all just carved into the marble. So yeah, that must be true. Yeah. If it's made of marble, so is it in relief then? That must be in relief. That's the word yeah. I'm looking for. Sorry, thank you. Yes. Wow. Take Which a bit, totally would take a bit of doing, wouldn't it? Is there a photo? Can you get a photo of the actual? Art? Yeah. There, oh, yeah. It's nice. There, we go. there it is. Look. Is it a, is it carved marble with all of these yeah. think pictures in relief? Yeah. Yep. Holy moly! I'll take a bit of carving. Okay, listeners. So, what? Just what? How did? Where did you find that? Just tell well, that's bit. on Sosibius vase, which is linked from the picture that's on the Wikipedia page for Sosibius vase. Ode on a Grecian urn. Yeah. Oh wow! So we're seeing the actual vase there, and it's not what I thought it was at all. It's less fragile. Yeah. Well, it would. That's why it's going to live forever. Yeah, it? and it's unravished. Yeah, because I thought it was more of a meditation on the fragility of the vase that it's still here, but actually, if it's made of marble, yeah, it's permanent. Oh, attic shape, fair attitude with breed of marble men and maidens overwrought. Yeah, you're right. I mean, actually, that's not quite what I visualised then. So it's more, it's a truly robust. Yeah, and it just gives object. cold pastoral. Yeah, I mean, wow. I mean, just those two words alone about that vase get you a seat at the table in English literary history. I think. Yeah. Cold pastoral. 
It's um, <laughs> is that volume two of your? It, it shares <laughs> it shares something with um, an Arundel tomb, doesn't it? The message of yes. this poem is quite similar to that in a way. You know, what survives mm. of us is what survives of us is. No, that's much more sentimental. Well, that's uncharacteristically for of that. Larkin, yeah. But no, but even so, the concept that you know is it an, in ages hence. Yeah, this, the this, idea this, of this, something. This, this idea will survive. What what uh, what survives of us is love. Well, that's the last line. Yeah, yeah the, but that idea that you know something something felt something half thought something felt yeah forever true or something yeah yeah anyway it doesn't really matter but it's got that similar kind of idea that um, these, this work of art that he's gazing on is going to survive with this positive and beautiful message. Not really. No, disagree. No? Oh, okay. I mean, soft disagree. Lowercase disagree. No, because Larkin's poem is about, it's incredibly sentimental. I mean, it makes me emotional, you know. It's its such a lovely thing to say, isn't it? What survives of us is love. It's so, it's one of the most romantic, rom, like uh, eros romance, as opposed to different forms of romance, poems in the, in the language. This is not like that at all. This is cold pastoral. This is, you're all going to die. And the best you can hope for is to appreciate the fleeting existence no, that's the no, message of this but poem. It's not because the message of this. I mean, particularly when when it's when it's uh, punctuated in, as it is in this copy here, the message is beauty is truth, truth beauty. At which point Keats looks up from his book, turns to the reader, and says, "That is all ye know on earth, and all ye need to know." It's all contained in this simple homily, this beautiful idea that truth and beauty are are equivalents and there is an equivalence between these two things and that to experience truth is a beautiful thing and to experience beauty is a you know is, is to experience the truth what does he mean by truth that seems to be quite crucial i think is that another one of these I think words he, that's changed me i think he means <laughs> that, beauty that, that question wasn't on the revision guide <laughs> i don't know the answer to that one because it's one of those things that you think oh yeah how deep and profound god yeah well well said man and then you go but what do you mean yeah what actually is truth what's that what does that mean well, it's a poetic truth. insight, isn't it? That he's saying this marble vase is beautiful. He's looking at it and he's thinking it's not false. It's not a false thought to think that this vase is beauty. No, but, but also, so, therefore, beauty is truth. But, but he's also saying that, that the vase, which is, let's say, it's 2,000 years old or whatever, roughly it would have been at that time, roughly mm -hmm. 2,000 years mm -hmm. old, let's, mm -hmm. let's assume. Didn't you say it was neo-attic? Yeah, maybe. <laughs> Yeah. Did you, um, maybe you said something else. But he's saying he doesn't. He, do, he doesn't know exactly because of all these questions. You know, in Tempe or the Dales of Arcady, what men or gods are these? He doesn't know the specifics of it. But what he's seeing in it are truths that are still relatable to him. And this is what I'm saying when we're talking about what the Romantic movement was about: is to see yourself in part of the continuity. And we get this all the way through. Through um, what was that poem that we read about? You know, the Romans underneath the. You know, on the windswept hillside, it was one of the, the fall of Rome. Oh no, no, house, you're talking house, about the A.E. House, Houseman, the Houseman yeah, poem. Yeah. Did, I mean, did the Legion? Isn't, and, isn't there a thing in, uh, the, in the Centurion? Oh, here we go. Listen to this. Legion. So this is from the previous uh, uh, ode, the, the Nightingale. Thou wast not born for death, immortal bird. No hungry generations tread thee down. The voice I hear this passing night was heard in ancient days by emperor and clown. I.e., there are con there's a continuity between the past and the present. There is a truth expressed in this pot which is true to me now, 2,000 years later. And then the beauty that's represented by this pot, there is something which is deeper than just a passing ephemeral beauty. There is an actual eternal fundamental truth that's being expressed here that we can draw from this. To, to experience the beauty of this pot is to experience a primordial everlasting truth that's deeper than the surface of, pot, of this pot. That there is something expressed here which we can draw from and 
that's all we need to know. We need to know that there are these eternal truths which are tangible and real that are available to us through the contemplation of beauty, man. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And that's what you get from a Grecian urn, you know. And the specifics of it are meaningless. It doesn't matter if it's in Tempe or the Dows of Arcady. It doesn't really matter what men or gods these were supposed to be representing at the time or what mad pursuit or what struggle to escape, what pipes and timbrels, what wild ecstasy. It says, heard melodies are sweet, but those unheard are sweeter. Therefore, ye soft pipes play on, not to the sensual ear, not to be heard, but more endeared, pipe to the spirit, ditties of no tone. So just speak directly to my spirit. So I don't need to hear the music. I just need to you just speak directly to my soul. And that's the experience of both truth and beauty. And that's what you can get from this contemplation is that equivalence. That's the E equals MC squared of the romantic movement. Yeah, it I is. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, good stuff, gents. Yeah. And good stuff, John. Yeah, nice one, Keats. <laughs> so, Rob, do you have anything for the recommendation station, the last feature of this episode? <sighs> no, I don't think I've watched anything particularly uh, compelling or, see, or read anything particularly compelling. I'm reading a book at the moment called In the Mountains of Poetry by Peter Naismith, which is a book about the country of Georgia and its interesting cultural and literary history. Um, but uh, I'm only about a few chapters into that at the moment, four or five chapters into that. So I can't really speak to its brilliance yet, but so far, so good. Okay, well, excellent. Dan looks like he's I'm just finding out what up. the subtitle of this book actually was. I've got two things for Recommendation Station. The first thing is, for our listeners, I've been doing one of the Harvard online courses, which I must say are free, you can pay if you want to get like the certification or whatever, but all the quizzes, the section quizzes and the lectures and the course materials are free. I've been doing one on world literature, ancient world literature or something it's called. And it's, um, I think his name's David Damrosch, who's an expert in the ancient Near East, and Martin Puckner, who's just got a book out at the moment called Culture. And it's like about the history of world culture. I'm loving it, absolutely loving it. And it's pushed me to find out a lot of things that I didn't know. Um, uh, particularly about the Epic of Gilgamesh, about Goethe, about all sorts of things. So that's my recommendation. The app that you need to use, obviously, if you go to Harvard website, you can find all this out, uh, but it's called edX, and then that gives you access to all these courses and great minds and blah, blah, blah. Super cool. And last weekend, I thought, you know, I'm going to read now, because I'd read around it, I'm going to read the Epic of Gilgamesh. In uh, But what I actually read last Sunday was Terry McDermott's <laughs> I knew we were heading in this direction yeah it's called Terry Mack living for the moment my autobiography um, which I'd also to any football fans out there highly recommend as a journey through English football well, I didn't even really know much about Terry McDermott yeah. at all um, he was part of the great Liverpool side mm. of the 70s and early 80s and then he became Keegan's assistant at Newcastle yeah, yeah. Um. <laughs> I think we can end this one there. But, oh, <laughs> but, but, 
But I have got one question, Dan. I mean, because um, yeah. I'm recalling one of your previous recommendations, station recommendations. How, where, how would you say it compares to the mini driver autobiography? <laughs> in, I, in I, say, I say both very engaging, both very entertaining. Reading a day, reading on Sunday afternoon, very nice. I'd say they're both excellent. There you go, listener. Get on it. Terry McDermott. I don't know who that is, but uh, apparently it's really <laughs> yeah, we're so, outside your wheelhouse. Here, right? I mean, either that or the Epic of Gilgamesh. <laughs> yeah, no, <laughs> they're that's, roughly, that's, roughly equivalent in literary what, value. That's what makes Dan so endlessly fascinating <laughs> and complex, though, isn't it? Yes, Those he, two sides of him. He contains multitudes. <laughs> <laughs> um, what about you, Dave? Yeah, so my one would be uh, I actually got in, in touch with someone called Sarah Crossan a little while ago via Twitter. I didn't really expect her to reply, but uh, at school we've done a, a poetry competition inspired by one of her poems. She's sort of predominantly a poet and and sort of predominantly a young adult author. And there's a, I think probably her best known work is called One. It's a, it's a, a novel in, a young adult novel in verse about conjoined twins. And it's, yeah, it's a very quick read and it's very involving and moving. So I quite enjoyed that, but I, I actually enjoyed more her one for adults, which is called, I keep forgetting the title, Here, Here Comes the Beehive. Here is the Beehive, which again, is a, a novel in verse about a woman. It's a sort of fascinating premise of a woman who's ha- been having an affair and her lover dies and she obviously can't really grieve in any kind of, you know, no one knows and she's not able to talk to anyone about it. And it's her sort of dealing with that. And I mentioned it, but, but I really enjoyed that that one in particular. But also Sarah Crossan is having now met her because she came into school to do stuff with about this poem. And she was absolutely fantastic. Um, just, you know, beyond anything that we were sort of hoping for in terms mm. of how, how great she was with the kids and how well she spoke and how funny she was and how just sort of ever so slightly controversial in the best possible way that she was. Mm. So I've been, you know, I'm a convert. I probably will read read more, but certainly if you're yeah, if you're interested in young adult fiction in particular. So if, any, if we do happen to have any listeners uh, who fit that bill, then and you're not familiar with her work, dream on, old man. <laughs> <laughs> or if you're more likely, perhaps um, an English teacher who's looking to invite someone in who's in the Sussex area because she's based in Hove, that you can't go wrong. She would be a, an excellent, excellent person to have in. Well, Great recommendation. So that's mine. Okay, well. Either, yeah, thank you very much as always for joining us and for listening. If you got all the way through, and um, please do get in touch. Oh yeah, can it's, you remember uh, this thing? Poetry podcasts at sorry, at poetry podcasts on Twitter or poetry podcasts at gmail dot com. Yeah, it would be lovely to hear from people uh, as always. Yeah, we um, love a bit of feedback. Yeah, we do. Yeah, yeah. we really do. Um, so yeah, thank you, and see you next time. That was rubbish. There you go. <laughs> Jobs are good. I knew I'd mess it up right at the end. No, it's going so well. <laughs> <laughs>